Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrel pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. We are back with another episode of Quarantined Pitches. And, uh, and we're really... We're really grasping at straws for what to tweet about these days. Yeah, we are. There's not a, there's not a lot going on. But, but Bobby, I do have a question that I'd like to ask you to start off this podcast. You know, I think uh, maybe turn the tables a little bit. Trading Put places. you on the spot. Yeah, yeah let's do exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> if you had to pick one element of your life right now that you wanted narrated by Joe Buck, what do you want? Hit me with it. Well, you know, I, uh, I did just get a dog. Alex, you're well aware of this. I've brought her onto our FaceTimes and Wait, you Zoom calls. And uh, I, you follow her on Instagram. I do. And you follow me on Twitter. And you are just a general member of my life. So you're aware that I got a dog. So That's true. We, we do know each other fairly well at this prob- point. <laughs> <laughs> Probably uh, something, something that the dog does. You know, I think it would be funny to if Joe Buck was narrating her pooping. She does that three <laughs> times a day. It's very healthy. Um or, you know, maybe he could narrate her just like being a fucking devil because that's what she is. Chewing on yeah. her leash, chewing on my hands, biting my <laughs> legs, biting my shorts, carrying around socks, um, eating blankets, eating her own hair. Maybe he could wow, narrate yeah. that. Joe Buck, what do you think? <laughs> maybe uh, maybe when little Stevie goes out for her, for her evening poop and you've gone outside for the first time all day, just as you as you walk back indoors, it's just Joe Buck saying, and we will see you tomorrow night. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Good yeah. bit. <laughs> On today's episode, uh, we are going to be joined later by uh, Matt Perret and Ty Kelly of Advocates for Minor Leaguers and um, just, just general friends of ours, you know, friends of the podcast. We can actually say that about a few people in this world, and I think that they qualify. What do you say? Yeah, no, they were... Uh, they were really great to have on. And frankly, I think our off-air conversation was as interesting as our on-air conversation. So we're going to have to have them back to a, not talk about like labor issues. That's such a Bush League move for you to mention our off-air conversation for the listeners. Wow, tough stuff. But we'll bring them yeah, back it's on our it, It's on our Patreon. So you can go uh, go Venmo us some money and maybe, maybe it'll pop up. It's on our Patreon? Go Venmo <laughs> us some money? That's how that works, right? Um, but obviously, we uh, we are continuing with our Tipping Pitches Classic series. Um, this one is for me. It's Game 6 of the 1986 World Series. Um, and we're going to get straight into that. But before we do that, I'm Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Baisley. And this is, I guess, Quarantined Pitches. That, w- <laughs> that didn't quite work in the intro, but we're going to let it slide. Alex, who the hell am I to introduce this game when in real life, the greatest of all time, Ben Scully, was introducing this game? Game six of the 1986 World Series is brought to you by Miller Genuine Draft. Cold filtered for real draft smoothness. It's beer at its best. By Merrill Lynch. Your world should know no boundaries. By the American Express card. Don't leave home without it. And by Ford and your Ford dealer. Have you driven a Ford lately? 
everybody. I'm Vin Scully, and welcome to Game 6. The last time the Boston Red Sox won a World Series, the Doughboys were dug in the trenches of France, Mademoiselle Armentiere, and finally, Johnny came marching home. They're trying to do it again tonight, and they're giving the ball to the best pitcher in the American League, Roger Clemens, who was almost a Met. For New York, Bobby Ojeda, who is pitching magnificently in the postseason. He won Game 2 of the playoffs following a loss. He helped keep Houston away and chase the specter of Mike Scott in Game 6. He won Game 3 at Fenway to prevent the nightmare of a Red Sox sweep. Well, Bobby Ojeda and Roger Clemens, it's the Mets who are dug in the trenches, the Red Sox making the charge. Let's meet the manager, the general of the Mets, Davey Johnson, and we'll go to Joe Garagiola. Good God. Okay, Imagine then. Vince Scully just announcing the World Series. I mean, I guess we don't have to imagine it because we have it. But, like, imagine Vin Scully calling, like, Dodgers Astros or Nationals Astros. God, the Astros just hanging around, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, does that clip that I just played by Transitive Property mean that you and I are presented by Miller Lite, Merrill Lynch, and American Express? Y- sure. Yeah. Well, why not? When, <laughs> when are the checks going to cash? That's my question. We're, we're getting called up to the big leagues. Um, let me start with the full disclosure thing that podcasters do, but don't really always need to do because who's coming to a podcast for objective opinion? Game six of the 1986 World Series is the greatest baseball moment that I have ever lived vicariously. It's the most profoundly improbable collection of innings ever strung together by men in tight Mets uniforms and devoid of context 34 years after it took place. It's nearly impossible to trust that the Mets found a way to win this game. But of course they win. They had to win, even more than the Red Sox had to lose. A lot of people's asses were on the line if this rambunctious, criminal, cocky 86 <laughs> Mets team didn't win the World Series. <laughs> yeah, lots of, lots of drugs and alcohol being consumed by this team. And, and for the record, being consumed by every team. The Mets were not alone, but they were the league leaders in in amount of uh, methamphetamines just being popped, like Adderall. Let's flash back to even before the first pitch. After Scully's introduction to the broadcast, he throws to a dugout interview with Mets manager Davey Johnson, who looks as slick and confident as ever. A shocking accomplishment given that the Mets are down 3-2 in the series and about to face 24-game winner Roger Clemens, who, you know, if we can jump to the present really quickly... Broke out that year for a 281 ERA, which led the AL, and he had 238 Ks to go along with it. And while we're still here in the present, is career 354 game winner Roger fucking Clemens? Pretty good. I hear he's uh, done some things in his career. We found a way to get a lot of good pitchers in all of these games, and it's saying a lot about what we appreciate in baseball. (laughs) Even though we talk about offense all the time on this podcast. (laughs) David Johnson has confidence in his game six starter, Bobby Ojeda who was 18-3 that year with a 2.57 ERA as the Mets' either second or third starter behind Doc Gooden and Ron Darling. And had been traded to the Mets from said Red Sox as recently as this past offseason. Let's sidebar really quickly, Alex. I want to talk about Roger Clemens as this archetypal flamethrower. He's taken the torch, so to speak, from Nolan Ryan, even though Nolan Ryan was still throwing gas for the NL runner-up Houston Astros that year. I know this seems like too much praise given the fact that he went on to be mired in steroid controversy. But if you're creating a flamethrowers club, which is a thing that I can create because this is our podcast, Clemens is probably standing right beside Bob Feller, Nolan Ryan, fellow World Series participant Doc Gooden, and just about anyone else in the long history of this game. What did you think about getting to watch young Raj 
in his only in only his third year in the league, I think. Yeah, it was his third year in the league, but this was really like the start of his career. This, uh, I mean, he had had a bit of an abbreviated season the year prior, and uh, and had stumbled a bit out of the gate in his rookie year. But I mean, I there is the case to be made that he's the greatest pitcher of all time. And We've like said that like six times, but this one is a legit case, guys. <laughs> but but like this, I mean, it's it's what like Clemens or Pedro or I, Nolan Ryan or Randy Johnson. Like I I struggle to come up with many more names besides that. Seaver's up there too, but I, my my vote might lie with Pedro. But and it's really unfair that Red Sox fans are just treated to this wealth of <laughs> pitching riches. But that's that's life for you. Talking about 86 game six and saying that it's unfair that Red Sox fans get treated feels like a little bit of a backhanded compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Saying that pretty much at any point in the Red Sox history prior to 2004 feels like a bit of a backhanded compliment. You're right about that. Um, Clemens just did it for so long is the thing. And he did it for a few different teams and just the longevity and the frankly like personality that he pitched with. Like I, I just... I really was captivated watching him on the mound in this game. And I know I've said that about a few different guys. I said that about Griffey. And it was interesting to watch Jack Morris. And it's obviously always captivating when 6'10 Randy Johnson is on the mound. But something about Clemens, like he had a little fuck you, you know? It was like a little bit of like a, I know I'm better than you, even though this is year three for me. And it's the first year that I've proven that I'm that I'm great. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was an asshole. But like most most good players back then were. So I think it was a prerequisite. All right, let's get back into it. Wade Boggs, he's back. S- second week in a row. Would this you is look the at Wade, that? The Wade Boggs power hour. <laughs> he steps into the box hitting uh, leadoff for the Red Sox. Uh, 86 seems like a more reasonable year for him to me. Again, this is a flaw in my historical baseball knowledge. <laughs> well, also, I think Boggs in a... Red Sox uniform feels more historically accurate to me. That feels like kind of the his uh, I don't know his iconic look. If you came here to learn how good Wade Boggs is, the answer is good. He's good. He's good at baseball. I hope that's what you came here for. Now you can stop listening. Uh, <laughs> he flies out to get Ojeda's night rolling, and that brings up second baseman Marty Barrett as Ojeda gets the ball back after throwing a first pitch ball to Barrett. A man with a parachute and a sign that reads "Go Mets." comes cascading down in the outfield. My guy, a parachuter in the first inning of the World Series. Do you remember New York before 9-11? I mean, the answer is no, because neither <laughs> of us had, had ever been to New York before 9-11. But still, can you imagine someone parachuting onto the field during the World Series of, or even during a regular season game in New York City right now? This is, this is also the second podcast in a row where we talk about some someone violating like multiple federal airspace laws. <laughs> uh, let's do a Phoebe Thoughts corner for a sec. Number one was, this would never happen after 9-11. And number two was, the helmets that they wear look fucking dumb. And they look like the ice cream helmets that you get served ice cream in at ballparks. That was Phoebe Corner. I think that's because that's what the uh, that's what the helmets and ballparks are modeled after, is it not? That's <laughs> I, think, I think so too. <laughs> I think she was just lamenting the fact that there was no ear cover. You know, it's dangerous out there. Yeah, it is dangerous out there. It was the wild, wild west. Anyway, the Red Sox tag Ojeda for a run in the first inning, but he's able to stop the damage and turn it over to a legitimately stacked Mets lineup that did very little for the first nine innings of this year baseball game. 
in the first inning, did you catch this? Lenny Dykstra leads off for the Mets. So Vin Scully announcing, and I have to assume to the larger baseball world, Lenny Dykstra is, quote, a threat to bunt, as is two-hitter Wally Backman. Now imagine, Alex, you're watching the 2017 World Series, and George Springer and Jose Altuve come up to kick off the Astros lineup, and our man, already referenced on this podcast multiple times, Joe Buck, says, wow, Tim, you got to think these guys are a threat to bunt here. (laughs) Strategy was a tire fire in the 1980s. More on strategy later, but let's just talk about that real quick. I don't know what to say. I mean, who wasn't a threat to bunt at this point? Like, like players were just so unathletic that you could just kind of assume that the third baseman probably wouldn't make it down the line to pick up the ball. That's like saying I'm a threat to stab you with a spoon. Like you're just (laughs) completely neat. Are you? (laughs) Is there something I should know? Um, these guys are just, they did a lot of kneecapping of themselves, you know? There should have been like 20 runs scored in this game, but whatever. For the first six innings of this game, things were pretty normal. I guess as normal as they can be with a generational ace flashing his good stuff in the World Series in front of 55,078 fans in Shea Stadium, RIP. There are a few perfectly executed hit and runs. There are more errors than you would expect from these two teams. There are sack bunts and intentional walks and Marlboro ads in the outfield. It feels like 1986. But come inning seven, things start to get really weird. Reliable Mets third baseman Ray Knight makes a throwing error on a routine ground ball from Red Sox right fielder Dwight Evans. The Sox had a runner on second who advanced to third on the error and was singled in one batter later by Red Sox center fielder Dave Henderson. Mookie Wilson, the first time we've mentioned him, props to us, has an outfield assist to keep the score 3-2 heading into the bottom of the seventh. Nothing doing in the bottom of the seventh for the Mets or the top of the eighth for the Red Sox, but in the bottom of the eighth, we have a sequence almost as quintessentially 80s as the Top Gun mustaches that two-thirds of the players in this game are sporting. Mets utility man Lee Mazzilli gets a pinch hit leadoff single to start the inning. Lenny Dykstra sacrifice bunts. There it is again. Uh, and Red Sox pitcher Calvin Chiraldi, who relieved Clemens to start the eighth inning. <laughs> More on Chiraldi later. I got a lot of takes about Calvin Chiraldi. Fields it and guns it to second, but his throw skips and gets away from Red Sox shortstops. Spike Owen. Then Wally Backman lays down another sack bunt. Alex, this was a team that won 108 games in the regular season, and they just sack bunted back-to-back with the top of their order in an elimination game in the World Series. And they say baseball used to be more exciting, which... Yeah, the Royals taking a page out of the, uh, out of the 86 <laughs> Mets playbook. That's why they won. Uh... It kind of was more exciting back then, but maybe that's a conversation for a different day. <laughs> so now it's second and third with one out for Keith Hernandez. The Red Sox walk. The legend, Keith Hernandez, bringing up Gary Carter, RIP, who does his goddamn job like a good 80s baseball player should and hits a sack fly to left to tie the game. Gary Carter led all of baseball that season with 15 sack flies during the season. It's fucking small ball hour on tipping pitches. <laughs> Can we can we just rewind for a hot sec? Because we we skipped over uh, Clemens coming out of the game, which in itself is a bit of a controversy. Kind of looking back on this game, um, I mean, Clemens is as you mentioned, this is his third season with the team, and and really, it's like his first full season with the Red Sox, and he is already the workhorse of that rotation. He has thrown two hundred fifty four innings in the regular season and in this game alone he's already above 130 pitches and it's possible that he could have kept going because like we said it's the 80s and there are no rules but he had already shown that he went one i think he went 143 in game in the game two i think it was that he pitched 
Yeah, exactly. So the fact that he had a long career after the, after this start is kind of stunning. But um, study but there was a bit of a science. Yeah, literally. Or maybe just study HGH. I don't know. We we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> but he's pulled by uh, Red Sox manager John McNamara, as you mentioned, because of an alleged blister on Clemens's finger, which uh, doesn't allow his breaking pitches to be as effective as they usually did. And there's a bit of uh, disagreement between McNamara and Clemens after the game on uh, on who made that decision. McNamara says it was Clemens who asked to be taken out of the ball game, and, uh, and Clemens vehemently denies it, although he says the blister is much worse than anyone could have imagined. So it's a bit conflicting where he's like, I had this thing on my finger that was really ailing me, but, uh, but no, I didn't want to come out of that ball game. Which I guess is, I guess in some respects is believable because none of these guys ever wanted to leave the ball game. But a, a, a part of me thinks that maybe Clement, Clemens is just kind of trying to save ass at this point. <laughs> um, baseball is the most fickle thing on earth. Like it's not just the most fickle sport; it's the most fickle thing. Like the yeah. fact that Roger Clemens, who you just made a, a reasonable case, is maybe the greatest baseball pitcher of all time. Um maybe had to come out of the most pivotal game since 1918 for a, a an original core franchise in Major League Baseball because he had a blister on his finger. He had a little boo-boo. Yeah, we've, t- we've talked about like, we've talked about Rich Hill's blisters ad nauseum in the baseball community in the last few years, but to think that like the Red Sox didn't win 86 because Clemens got a little blister, like, it's just so stupid. It's just so stupid and there's nothing you can do to prevent it, but it's just so dumb. Yeah. It's very dumb. <laughs> it's just like anyway. cells, like skin cells are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> the human body, dumb. Uh, continue. He, he was picking a lot at his hand. I will say that. I noticed that on the broadcast, having known that the blister thing was a thing since I've read multiple books about this, this series. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, let's just skip the ninth inning altogether for the sake of time. You and I could probably spend a lot of time talking about how Vince Scully crucifies Davey Johnson for not sack bunting with Howard Johnson. <laughs> Uh, when they had a man on first base in the bottom of the ninth of an elimination game in the World Series in 1986. It's insane that they did not sack bun here. On to the 10th with uh, Mets reliever Rick Aguilera on the hill now. He came on in the ninth. Alex, the 10th inning <laughs> is an unmitigated disaster for the New York The Mets. 10th inning des- deserves its own podcast, if we're being quite honest. We need an oral history of it. Stat. Aguilera gets behind one nothing, and then absolutely grooves a fastball that Dave Henderson lines over the left field wall to put the Red Dave Sox. Dave Henderson, who has been raking this postseason, absolutely just crushing the ball. I can't believe that they that he threw that pitch as in his wheelhouse as he did. But alas, yeah. here we are. So that puts the Red Sox up four three. He then goes on strikeout Spike Owen and Calvin Chiraldi. Yes. The fucking relief pitcher, Calvin Chiraldi, hitting for himself in the top of the 10th inning of a World Series clinching game in order for him to be able to go out for his third inning of work after giving up the tying run and throwing like 40 pitches in the 8th inning, his first inning of work. Wade Boggs doubles, Marty Barrett singles, and suddenly the Red Sox are up 5-3. Aguilera stops the bleeding, but is clearly beside himself as he heads back to the dugout to join his team, their backs firmly pinned against the wall. When we go to the bottom of the 10th, the Mets have a 1% chance of winning this game. 1% chance. Here's the thing about the bottom of the 10th inning of Game 6 of the 1986 World Series between the New York Mets and the Boston Red Sox. 
taken with everything I know to be true about the Metropolitans. As a fan of the team, as a fan of baseball at large, as a member of Twitter.com, it is the biggest anomaly in the history of baseball. If you're going to get a rally started when you're about to be eliminated at home in the World Series, two, three, four spots in the order is exactly who you want to up. Especially when number two is Wally Backman, who had and always would show a penchant for doing whatever the Mets needed any and every time. He hits a pedestrian fly ball to left, legitimately shocking, seeing as he could be the Mets' drag bunt slap hit hero, seemingly on command whenever he needed to be. Davey Johnson now looks inconsolable in the dugout, and Scully is still crushing his decision not to sack bunt. <laughs> Finn Scully in this game is absolutely savage. Is that ever going to be a long press conference for Davey Johnson if it ends like this? In the bottom of the ninth inning, Ray Knight walked. Mookie Wilson butted. The throw to second was high by Gedman. Jim Evans ruled that Owens was off the bag, and there was first and second, nobody out. A bunt puts the winning run at third base. But Davey Johnson opted to have Howard Johnson swing away, and he eventually struck out. Foul ball. And then, as so often happens after one decision, something immediately happens to make you rue the decision. Mazzilli a fly ball deep to left that would have scored the winning run. But instead, the runners held at first and second. And when the He's still crushing his decision from the ninth inning, not to bunt with Hojo. He looks... Davey Johnson now looks, dare I say, like I looked watching Matt Harvey blow game five of the 2015 World Series. Alex, can you confirm to the listener? I can confirm to the listener, although I take issue with the characterization of Matt Harvey being the one to blow that. And (laughs) And not Terry Collins? (laughs) And not Terry Collins. Maybe he just looks like Terry Collins. I don't know. I got to go back and watch the footage. I haven't gone back and watched that game, and I don't think I will be. Keith Hernandez is up next. Now, they brought Keith in specifically for this moment. The Mets traded for him two years before because he had won a title with St. Louis. He, quote, knew how, so to speak. What does he do? With the opportunity to be the hero in game six, he flies out weekly to center. Even on a second watch 34 years later, what happens next feels impossible. Vin Scully is handing out the fucking player of the game award to Marty Bennett. There's two outs, bottom of the ninth. They're down two. Gary Carter, God rest his soul, singles to left to keep the Mets alive. Kevin Mitchell, built like a fire hydrant, more swagger than anyone on the Mets by far. Pinch hits and singles to center. Ray Knight, the potential goat from the seventh inning for his error. Bloop singles to center just over the second baseman's glove, who was playing up the middle. That scores Carter to cut the lead in half. Mookie Wilson steps into the box. A lot of people remember how this at-bat ended, but I'd venture to guess that not a lot of people remember how it started, or even what happened in between when he stepped into the box and when a dribbler off the end of his bat squirted into right field to keep the Mets' season alive. Now facing Red Sox reliever Bob Stanley, poor Calvin Schiraldi, visibly sweating bullets, looking like me after I finally start cardio again after quarantine, has finally been shown mercy. For some weird reason, MLB Vault included the commercial break of this pitching change, something they didn't do for any other inning or pitching change throughout the broadcast. Let's listen to a a little bit of that here. Power your business software into a new dimension with the Tandy 3000 computer. Important data is only milliseconds away from an advanced 286 microprocessor that delivers high-speed performance and PC compatibility. You can add up to 12 million bytes of memory and expand by sharing that power with others in your office. Discover the Tandy 3000 family of value-priced business computers at Radio Shack Computer Centers. Back to Mookie. 
He gets behind in the count one, two, works it to two, two, fouls off three straight fastballs up in the zone to avoid season ending strikeout. And then, as we enter the twilight zone, with the hysteria of 1986 Queens creeping onto the field like the mist, Red Sox catcher Rich Gedman sets up low and outside. Bob Stanley, my friends, throws low and very far inside, and the Mets' salvation begins. Mitchell scores from third on the wild pitch. Knight advances to second as the winning run. And Mookie, one of the only members of the 86 Mets you can truly root for in good conscience watching this game. It's a little dribbler and the first baseline. Behind the bag. And mercifully, just into right field to score right now. That was it. It was just a regular old single <laughs> down the first baseline. Alex, I'm curious. I want to start here. What are some things that you didn't know about this game? You mentioned last week that this was the first time that you'd watch this game. Um, obviously, it goes down in baseball lore. It's one of the most famous baseball games in the history of the sport. But I'm curious for you, having never seen this game, I've seen this game like a few times now, but I obviously didn't remember the play-by-play. I'm curious for you, like, what didn't you know? What do you feel like is the part of the story of this game that doesn't get told? I think, honestly, the thing that I did not know about this game, and that I do know now, having watched it, is that it's not Bill Buckner's fault. (laughs) Is that he is, like, seventh on the list of reasons why the Red Sox lost this series. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so... McNamara's up there. (laughs) Chiraldi is, like... Up there, but once again, the blame lies in uh, in McNamara's lap. Chiraldi, Bob Stanley, who throws the wild pitch, yeah, that's like that's like as egregious of a of a situation as any ball that goes through anyone's leg. Chiraldi used to be a Met, which is a whole another layer of this onion. Yeah, and, it was the Ojeda Chiraldi trade this past season, right? Yeah. That set up two of the pivotal characters in this game because the Red Sox bullpen was really unreliable all year. If you listen to Red Sox fans who were there for this game, they'll tell you as soon as they turned it over to the bullpen, as soon as Clemens came out, that feeling started to creep over them. That feeling like everything was going to go wrong. That that woe is me Boston mentality that feel that we feel so far away from now because they've won 25 titles in the last whatever 20 years or, or whatever it is. But the, the reason that I didn't mention the Buckner error is because like you said, maybe he's seventh on the list or maybe he's fourth on the list or maybe whatever it is for the reasons that he lost this, the reasons that the Red Sox ended up losing this game. But also like, I think there's a legitimate case to be made that Mookie was going to beat the pitcher to cover the bag. And also Buckner was not the most fleet of foot at this point in his career. So for him to field that ball relatively cleanly, or even if he bobbled it a little bit, even if it didn't go through his legs, even if he didn't, even if he filleted it relatively cleanly, he was leaning all the way to the left, kind of straddling the the baseline behind the bag. And I don't I feel like for him to shift his weight and get all the way to the bag, it would have been a bang bang play. And I choose to believe for the sake of not blaming Buckner for this entire game and not making this a conversation about everything that happened after that. I choose to believe that maybe Mookie would have beat it out. I've always said that as a joke, and I kind of really maybe believe it. Because Mookie was really fast, really athletic, and left-handed batter, obviously going from the second that he makes any contact with it. Uh, I don't know. It's it, We'll never know. But there's no point in talking about this game and making it completely about a dribbler to right field. Yeah, I want to talk about Bill Buckner for a sec, who coming into this game is is one of the 
the better hitters of his generation. At the time, he maybe looks like a, a borderline Hall of Fame case, and that doesn't come to be, but he still ends his career north of 2,700 hits. He is a as reliable as they come and has been a stalwart uh, for the 70s and 80s and, and yet has been hobbled by injuries for really the last decade. Um, he has an Achilles heel injury that he never really recovers from. Uh, he, his ankles are aching. His knees are aching. He's basically in pain all of the time. He ices for hours after every single game, and he's had nine cortisone shots this season alone. He wants to be there so badly. And that is something that his his teammates and his managers will attest to, is that he does not want to be on the sidelines as, as his team breaks the curse of the Bambino. And in every single Red Sox victory this postseason, at the end of the game, John McNamara substituted out Bill Buckner for Dave Stapleton as a defensive replacement. Every single Red Sox victory, except for this one, which, as we all know, ended up not being a victory. So when you talk about goats, and I don't mean greatest of all time, I mean literally the the people who should bear the brunt of the blame, a guy like Bill Buckner, like you, it, it ends up being more tragedy than really anything else. All I can look at this, all I can do is look at what happened and feel sorry for him. And when you look at the way that he was treated, not even necessarily by fans, but by the media in the immediate aftermath and for the years to follow, his name lives in baseball lore forever for a single play that that really obscures how incredible a career he had. And it's, it's incredibly sad. It really is. Career 289 hitter. Like you said, 2,700 hits. It does bring up an interesting question I want to ask you. Um, and I have, a, I have a bunch of questions for you about this game. But because you brought up Buckner, how bad of an error would someone who was slated to make the Hall of Fame have to make either A, to keep him out of the Hall of Fame, or B, to sort of like overshadow his induction? Let's say, let's say for the sake of argument, Derek Jeter doesn't play his career with the Yankees. He just plays with the Padres. and They never make it to the World Series, but he still has the exact same statistical career. He has an unassailable case to make it into the Hall of Fame because of all the hits and all of the clutchness and all of the defense for the early part of his career or whatever. Let's say they had made it to the World Series one time and Derek Jeter let a ball bounce off of his glove in the ninth inning of Game 7. Would it be the first thing that we talked about in his Hall of Fame induction? I mean... Yeah, probably. That's the thing is like so much of this is contextual to what was happening in the history of the franchise at that time. Like it fits so neatly into this curse of the Bambino that it was very easy to tack Buckner's name onto a list next to name of guys like Eno Slaughter, Joe Morgan, and Bucky Dent, right? As like the reasons that the Red Sox just couldn't make it happen. And it it feels like it's the kind of thing that that like only happens to him because he's in this scenario. There are dozens of times when players mess up on the biggest stage and it doesn't necessarily haunt them for the rest of their career. When Trent Grisham lets the ball get past him in the wild card game against the uh, with the Brewers against the Nationals. 
and it effectively ends the Brewers season, we're not talking about that anymore. And frankly, I don't think we will. And I'm sure it's something that will be on his mind, but it's not something that's going to be written about for years and years and years to come, just because the stakes weren't that high and the Brewers didn't have a, a curse that they were trying to end. And it's just, I don't know. I, Bill Buckner was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, man. It's almost like it's almost unfair to even blame anyone for the circumstances of a game like this. Like, especially now in 2020, looking back on what it was like, it's like, you know, 34 years later, like it's almost unrecognizable to me, the events of this game. Like it just doesn't seem like I said, I called it in my summary, like it's twilight zoney and the, the crowd is like seeping in on the game, like the mist they're throwing toilet paper on the field. Like we joked about at the beginning, there's a parachuter jumping onto the field. Like what, what even is this game? (laughs) It's so weird. (laughs) It's bizarre. And it's bizarre on so many levels. Not the least of which is that the Mets had already subbed out Daryl Strawberry, who's their best position player on their, on the team this year. And he was having a tough series. He had no RBIs in this series to this point. And in this game, he, he had like, two really long walks, which is like not what Straw was known for. And off Roger Clemens, who was like, for the most part, he was throwing a lot of pitches, but he wasn't walking a lot of guys. And Strawberry draws two walks and steals two bases to kind of like keep the Mets afloat in the first few innings. And he's the only person to reach base for the first, I think, five or six innings. And I I feel like a little bias in this, but and I feel like this maybe sounds a little obvious now looking back on these teams. The Mets won 108 games and the Red Sox won 95. And, you know, it was sort of sputtering for the Mets at the end there. Like they they were given all they could handle by the Astros and the NLCS. And obviously, like you can only do greenies for so many consecutive months out of a baseball season. But like, let's just call it what it is here. The Mets were way better. They were a better team. <laughs> and they they won in weird fashion. But if you played this series 10 times, Let's use the old Bill Simmonsism. If you played the series a hundred times or ten times, the Mets win it like seventy-four of those hundred times. Uh, I'd like to see the model that you ran on that. <laughs> I my numbers over here are closer to sixty-nine. <laughs> um, can I run down a few quick quick hit questions for you? Run down them for me. Let's do it. Why do you and I continue to choose four-hour-long games? <laughs> it's- I was just thinking about that. I was like, God, this one really goes into extras too. Oh, God. <laughs> the eighth inning of this game is like 40 minutes. I know. Uh, number two. How did Mets reliever Roger McDowell, who comes into this game in the seventh inning, he relieves Ojeda. And um, he's he's a pretty interesting watch in 2020. Like he's a sinker baller. He throws hard. His ball moves a lot. The Red Sox have no idea what to do with him, really. He's not pitching perfectly in this game, but... He's an interesting watch, and he's clearly the Mets' workhorse out of the bullpen. Um, aside of Orozco, Jesse Orozco, who's their closer. Um, McDowell, in 1986, they flashed this stat across the screen, and, and I want you to explain to me how the fuck this happened. He got 23 decisions. He was 14-9, to nine, but also 22 saves? How did they use him? What was the usage of this guy? <laughs> if only I knew. <laughs> like, I mean, who, who is that now? Who is that now? It doesn't exist. Nobody goes into that many save opportunities, but also gets 23 decisions. Unless like 
in the very off chance that you're just like winning games right at the end, you know? You're coming yeah, from behind. But this a lot. team was this it's not like this team came back and had like just happened to have 22 come from behind victories while while Roger McDowell was pitching, right? Like yeah. no, it was it's very much the kind of usage of a pitcher that we don't really see anymore, although we actually are kind of starting to see a resurgence of where like pitchers don't necessarily have roles. You just kind of fit them in where you need them. And so you ask who like would do this. And it's like probably half the pitchers on the race, right? <laughs> who like, who like, there is no closer and you just kind of come in. And so you might end up winning a bunch of games because you're a shutdown reliever who just happens to throw a couple innings in like the, the sixth and seventh, right? Yeah. Or you're like, um, you're like the opener or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> All right. Third, third rapid fire. Is it me? Or does Roger Clemens kind of look a little bit like Mike Trout? Do I just make miss Mike Trout's face on a baseball field, or do they kind of look alike? Wow, you are doing Mike Trout so dirty right now. <laughs> Am I? Like, I mean, not that Trout's like the the best looking guy. I mean, I'm not going to slander him. He's he's a he's a hunk for sure. But uh, but I don't know. Maybe it's just Clemens's personality that I that I tack on to him unfairly. You're thinking about you're thinking about like late stage Clemens in court looking greasy as hell <laughs> wearing like a button button up shirt that's like the the top three buttons are like not buttoned but also he has a tie on it's like you're thinking about the wrong Clemens I'm thinking about the Clemens in 1986 in this game I mean there's certainly no neck that's for sure it's just head <laughs> it's to just shoulders that. Yeah, it's just that. <laughs> and, a, and like a and like a square face I, I guess say, I see it I know what you're going for who's to say what Mike Trout will look like in 2043 at his HGH hearing. Wow. <laughs> Brutal stuff. I'm just kidding. I'm this, just kidding. this quarantined podcast has gotten bleak. <laughs> All right. What, what do you have that I missed? You know, I actually think we've covered a lot from this game and there's not a lot else that I have except for the fact that it has nothing to do with this game at all or even this series. And that's why the Red Sox are here in the first place. You want to know why they're here in the first place? Because the California Angels blew a 3-1 lead <laughs> in the ALCS. <laughs> and frankly, they don't get roasted enough for that. So that's my that's going to be my beat for 2020. Just reclaim the 3-1 lead thing, but for the Angels so that you don't have to hear it for the Warriors anymore? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, that's fine. The one other thing that I want to bring up, just because I got deep in my feels about Bill Buckner, and because like it's impossible not to watching this game. Like He's mentioned as a punchline more... He's mentioned as a punchline more times than you can count. And like, it's so easy to forget the humanity that goes into this game. It's so easy to forget also that like, this didn't win the Mets the series, that there was another game to play, right? Like the way that this game is talked about, it's like, this was the nail in the coffin for the Red Sox. And it's like, they had a whole other nine innings to win a ball game and they didn't do it. That's why is that Bill Buckner's fault? (laughs) Um, But so he had... He returns to Fenway a, a couple times in the uh, following decades. And, uh, and when he returned to Fenway in 2008 to throw out the, the first pitch during the game that the Red Sox would collect their World Series rings from the year prior, he, uh, after the game, he, he was quoted as saying, I really had to forgive not the fans of Boston per se, but I would have to say in my heart, I had to forgive the media. And it really, 
I think, puts into perspective how just the amount of power that like the media has in particular for like shaping the narrative around players and around history. And that like Red Sox fans by and large, I mean, I know that many held a grudge and he lived in Red Sox lore, but they were not necessarily the ones who were booing him and harassing him. They gave him standing ovations when he came back. And and a lot of that is like just kind of, it's very easy 20 or 30 years out to like give the guy a standing ovation. But he he went on to say, uh, I don't think that in society in general is the way that we should operate. What are you teaching kids? Not to try, because if you don't succeed, then you're going to be buried. So don't try. And I was like, that's a bar. Fuck. That's, oh my God. Bill Buckner, go off. <laughs> <laughs> um, it reminds me of something that, that Bill Simmons, who I mentioned already on this podcast, that he talked about on, on his show with Joe Buck. He had Joe Buck on his podcast, weirdly enough, this last week. And they talked about how uh, a lot of the resentment towards someone like Joe Buck just comes from like the having resentment towards the nameless idea of like the national sports media because he mentioned like every time that the Red Sox would make it to the playoffs after 86 or you know you're you're in 2003 against the Yankees or you're in 2004 trying to break the curse again against the Yankees and all you're seeing is like here comes the Buckner montage here comes the the Boone home run here comes all of the times that the Red Sox could have won that series against the 86 Mets and it's like yeah, on one hand, the media is doing their job and informing the the viewer of everything that happened. But on the other hand, were they always doing the best job of framing it in the correct light? Maybe, maybe not. I don't I mean those things age. Your mileage may vary on how those things age. But yeah, I mean, I actually really liked watching Buckner in this game, like all the way up until the all the way up until the play in the tenth inning. Like he's really, he's like sort of the spirit of the team. Like he's running over to the pitcher to conference a lot, and he's like. He's like rallying the troops in the dugout and there's this great moment in the sixth inning where he tries to pull like a hidden ball trick on um who was it even on i don't remember i think it was on wally backman but he tried yeah it was on wally backman he tries to pull a hidden ball trick on wally backman and it's like it's on a pickoff to first base from the pitcher and he pretends like it went sailing past him even though the ball landed perfectly in his glove at his chest and backman just kind of laughs at him and like gives him a slap on the butt and it's a shame that like that's those were the last moments that we could view his career unmarred and and now every time that you talk about him it's like a caveat but I don't know that's part of my effort in, in doing the summary of this game and including it as a as a single for for Mookie it fits my agenda <laughs> and also what a stash on the guy my God I dude new, Freddie new Mercury's <laughs> influence bro new, everybody has the Freddie Mercury stash in this. New rules for tipping pitches classics is every game has to feature a unheralded first baseman with an incredible stash who really never got his due. We've got Don Mattingly. We've got Bill Buckner. Who's next on the list? I, I hate to break it to you, but we're going more recent for next week. And uh, mustaches like this are just out of style, I guess. It's, it's much more beards. All three first basemen involved in this next game that we're choosing all have some kind of beardy facial hair. Those three gentlemen are Chris Colabello, Justin Smoke, and Mitch Moreland. We are talking about 2015 ALDS Game 5 between the 
Texas Rangers, and Toronto Blue Jays. Better known as the Jose Bautista bat flip game. Alex, you and I were actually together watching this game live, so this will be an interesting element of of going back and rewatching this. Um, I'm I'm fucking pumped for this one. This is a good I'm, one. I'm pumped. This is actually probably the like <laughs> maybe like the Stop greatest. Stop saying it. Stop. Non, this is not, every no, game. <laughs> the greatest game of all time. I know. No, no. But this is probably the the greatest like non A's game that I witnessed like happen yeah, yeah, yeah. in real time. You're right about that. Um, if you got takes about this game or if you got takes about 86 or you want to talk to us about Buckner's legacy or you want to talk about how Mookie Wilson was going to beat the play out anyway and the, the game scorer was uncharitable to Bill Buckner, please feel free to reach out to us, tippingpitchespod at gmail.com, tipping underscore pitches on Twitter. We're going to take a quick break and we thank everyone for their commitment and sticking around as we go to talk to Matt Perret and Ty Kelly of Advocates for Minor Leaguers because it's a really important conversation and those guys were really nice to give us a lot of their time. So stick around. She keeps them away Shonda, in a pretty cabinet. Let them eat cake, she says, just like Marie Antoinette. A building remedy for Chris Job and Kennedy. At any time, an invitation you can't take. All right, Alex, this is our first four-person quarantine podcast, I think. So we're going to see how this goes. We are joined by Matt Perret and Ty Kelly of Advocates for minor leaguers guys hello i appreciate you guys being here on this sunday morning thank Thank you for having us um so i want to start out can you just give us the the i guess elevator pitch or rundown of your involvement for with advocates for minor leaguers how it got started um why you guys personally feel so strongly about this and to the point where like a couple years matt for you removed from your playing career tie a year or so out from your playing career with MLB. Obviously, you're still playing with Israel on the national team, but just like why this is so important to you in this moment and then how that kind of catalyzed your involvement with it. Sure, yeah. So we are advocates for minor leaguers and that pretty much sums it up right there. They don't have a voice. They don't have a seat at the bargaining table. Uh, Everything is done on their behalf, voted on by none of them, um, just by like people that no one really knows about like what's going on. Um, and every, so everything is done like, uh, you know, just somewhere that they don't see, they don't know what's happening, but they, they find out in, um, an email or something like that, or on Twitter that something was done, um, you know, about them or, or for them hopefully. But, uh, so yeah, so we're trying to be the voice and, uh, we want to be able to speak up for them and, get better stuff for them and uh, make sure that they can live and eat and all of the important things. Um, and Matt, do you have anything else to add on, yeah. on that? I, I mean, definitely. I think uh, one of our biggest goals uh, and, and what we saw uh, a need for was also educating people on what minor league baseball is like. Cause a lot of people don't know. And for for us, you know, we obviously know that minor leaguers make absolutely like nothing, uh, but the regular person does not. Uh, they, you know, if you ask them, they'd be like, "Oh, you know, like fifty thousand, a hundred thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars," and it's like, "No, okay, oh, thirty thousand dollars," and it's like, "Uh, uh-uh. uh, 
like way lower. It's like under $7,000. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's awful. I can't believe that. And how much did Major League Baseball make in profits? $1.2 billion? Oh, okay. And it, I think it's just like, that is a, a huge part of our platform too, is, is not only being the voice for uh, minor league baseball players, but also like helping them to get that message out to other people that of how like low these wages are and how poor these conditions are. We, uh, we had on Jeremy Wolf from the organization more than baseball uh, a couple of weeks ago. And we had a great conversation about the, the work that they're doing. Um, but it's, but it's definitely a bit of a different approach. I mean, they, uh, their focus seems to be both about kind of raising awareness and saying, okay, how can we all kind of chip in, um, get money directly to minor leaguers as fast as possible? Or if you have a couch that some of, some can sleep on. And, uh, and on the contrary to that, like another of your co-founders of this organization, Garrett Brocious, um, is currently representing minor leaguers in a class action lawsuit. Right. Since 2014. And so it, it feels like these kind of dual, uh, approaches that, uh, you guys are taking towards this common goal. But can you talk a little bit about kind of, um, maybe what sets yourself apart from, from some other efforts that have been taking place over the last few years? Yeah. So I, I think that we are, we're sort of on the, the long con, I guess. We're, we're trying to, um, we're trying to establish a system. You know, that has no need for our organizations where minor leaguers are just getting paid enough that, that, um, or that they are unionized at some point, um, and, and able to bargain for themselves. Like we are trying to set up that system, you know, or, or change the current system so that it allows them to be on their own basically. And they don't need, uh, donations and, and charities and, and, um, other players within their organization. Um, spreading their wealth around, you know, um, which obviously is great in the short term, like you guys mentioned, but, um, you know, we're hoping that they're just paid livable wages and, and, um, you know, and that they're in an atmosphere that allows them to, to thrive as players and, and first and foremost, as just employees of an organization, um, and, you know, if, there, if I could add one other thing, also, you mentioned the class action lawsuit going on since um, 2014, that personally, I know th- it was a big decision at the time whether everyone was going to, um, you know, to, to put their name in on that lawsuit. And a lot of people uh, were concerned about whether they wanted their name to be in that, what th- their organization would think of it. And I know that personally, like I didn't want to be involved in that because, uh, like, you know, like so many other guys, you don't want your organization to just go, Oh, you're involved in this. Well, we're going to release you and then they can make up anything they want. So that's another thing that our organization is trying to establish where it's okay to want to be paid above poverty level wages. Like you don't have to feel bad about that. You're not saying anything negative about your organization. You're just saying, hey, I'm an employee at a company. I deserve to be not uh, paid poverty level wages. Right. And and uh, there's no such thing as wrongful termination in sports, right? They can always just be like, oh, sorry, there's no room for you. And I think that's a that's a huge issue, right? Of like the fear. Um, and I, I remember, Ty, we were 
on a beach in San Diego when uh, we got the email and it, we were talking about like, oh, do we sign it or not? And, and humble brag. Were you with any celebs at the time? If uh, yeah. Matt Lujan uh, is a celebrity, <laughs> then yes. Uh, one of uh, that's actually how Ty and I met was uh, a former teammate of mine. Um, yeah, but, we uh, both we both attached ourselves to other Matt's star, and um, and and uh, on that beach that day. Yeah, so I think um, that's a huge issue. Is like being the the fear of losing your job, and for me. That was also the case too of like, oh, I don't want to put my name on this class action suit because um, if you know the Giants saw that, would they think differently of me? Um, because as a undrafted free agent, you don't have much leverage there. Um, that was where I always had to tiptoe that line with my YouTube channel, Homeless Minor Leaguer, of and the interviews that I would because everyone would come to me asking me, you know, what do you think of minor league pay? And I would be like, oh, you know, well. I know exactly what I signed up for, but at the end of the day, like I knew like this was wrong. It's just, I couldn't say that, um, because of the fear of, you know, getting released. And I've, and all these guys have worked so hard throughout their whole lives that they're afraid to give up that chance. And I think that's the, the narrative that how much we romanticize, uh, the journey is another reason why we're okay with, or, or how, why it's been okay that these minor leaguers get paid nothing. It's because of the, for the love of the game and all these things. It's like, oh, these boys living their dream. It's like, no, these are men. These are grown men who have to pay mortgages, who have a wife, they have kids, and they have to help their families. And it's just, it's wrong. I, I want to ask about that stigma of speaking out, Matt, because you have the, obviously you have the homeless minor leaguer. And if if you're listening and you don't, know what that is go check that out that's matt's youtube ch- matt's youtube channel where you know he's put together a lot of funny parody videos about minor league pay and minor league life and things of that sort but did you feel like when like when you when you guys both were in the minor leagues like was there just was there an unspoken aspect of this or did you guys commiserate with your teammates about what this was like about the pay about what you could do about how you could speak out how you could sort of carry the torch or was that completely squashed for you guys um, there's, there's uh, constant complaining and, and people talking about like unionizing and stuff like that. And no one really has any idea what to do. Uh, like what's the next step. Um, there's always someone in every clubhouse that's like the idea guy. And, um, he's just throwing out ideas like, uh, you know, shotgun style and union comes up all the time. And it's just like a couple people are on board and then it's like, what's the next step? And no one has any idea what they're supposed to do. Obviously it's a very hard thing for people that have a plan of, of what to do. But, um, it's, um, I I think the thing that like that, that me and Matt always talk about is this, the idea of like, if you don't like it, play better is just something that is in every clubhouse and um it's going to be parroted by you know guys that have been at higher levels especially um and that will really like it'll really shut up the the younger guys that are like oh this this sucks today and then it's like oh you don't like it play better they're like oh okay well like if if those are my only options then i i'm gonna stop complaining right Um, you should be grateful 
for sure. And it just, it just keeps things going in the same way as nothing changes. And you even hear it from coaches. Like, I mean, just as much as players. Um, I, I posted some stuff, uh, earlier in this off season, uh, about some, some unfortunate looking sandwiches from, uh, from spring training. I, li- I literally head. just pulled that up. It's brutal stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's literally, it was two pieces of white bread, one piece of deli meat and one piece of cheese. And then, and like that's lunch. Um, you get like a gogurt and an apple and stuff too, which like, obviously who doesn't love a gogurt? But um, it's really like well, you the, because you're vegan, right? I didn't eat. Yeah, I got to eat the apple. That literally, though, like I didn't always pack my my lunch because I was like, oh, I you know I can make a salad, and then they're like, no, you can't make a salad. Um, again, like you know, I, it's it's all and, and then like I, I talked to the the coaches. I was like, hey, like this, you know, like this isn't okay. Like the, they're not letting us make food before we go on the road they're saying like this is all you get and like obviously i'm not eating any of this stuff um and they're like one coach looked at the other one was like hey what did, what did you used to get at spring training what did you used to eat and the mm-hmm. other one was like soup and he's like see and i was like okay yeah like let's just never make any improvements like let's never make any progress like that that's that's perfect you know like we'll never get anywhere with this attitude that's the american dream right there baby absolutely Right, because I had it bad, you also have to have it bad. Yeah. <laughs> Where have I heard that before? <laughs> so can you guys talk a little bit just kind of about what your, I guess, medium-term goals look like, even short-term goals? I know that you, um, you've come out with some statements about uh, doubling minor league salaries to $15,000. And, um, and that's even that alone, I see that, and I'm like, wait, you're doubling it? Two fifteen thousand, like that's just—it's stunning to me every time I read that. But kind of, what are these? What are these first steps that you guys are, are taking? How are you bringing players into the fold? And what are your, I guess, hopes for the next kind of year or, or two? I think uh, the the short term goal and and just kind of sustained is is like I said before is educating people um, about minor league salaries and and how low they are. I think an Another aspect is getting these players into the fold and being able to tell their stories uh, in a format that they are comfortable with, right? Uh, We just recently uh, put out a blog post with an anonymous uh, minor leaguer, uh, and that was the the medium that we thought was best to tell his story. Um, Long-term, obviously, Ty mentioned it, being a collective voice uh, for these minor leaguers, um, is ultimately like what we want to be able to do. Um, and that is, you have to build trust, uh, with the players through that. And I think we are building those relationships, uh, one by one right now and, uh, truly like forming these relationships. How does this, uh, baseball hiatus, affect kind of how you guys saw this whole thing starting up and I, I know that's probably a loaded question because like we're all kind of unsure about what's going on and and how this affects our lives and our livelihoods and the things we care about but um it just in terms of things that you guys had planned at the beginning and how you're sort of adjusting now how does the whole coronavirus pandemic affecting the baseball world affect what you guys are doing 
Yeah, originally we were, I mean, we, we'd spent a lot of time trying to figure out when was the best time to launch and, and getting everything prepared, really, um, trying to make sure that whenever we did launch, we were going to be prepared to handle, um, you know, what we were trying to do and make sure that we were going to be able to achieve our goals. Um, but when every, when all of this happened, uh, this whole pandemic and, and all of the, uh, leagues being postponed and, and everything, um, it really displaced a lot of guys. I mean, it displaced everyone, you know, everyone in the world has been affected. Like, you know, we can start there, but minor leaguers, especially, um, are, they, they have no idea what's going to come. And they, again, like they have no voice. Um, things are being bargained for them on their behalf with, uh, no vote by them. And, mm-hmm. uh, we found that this was going to be the time that, uh, that, you know, that if, if these things were going to be exposed, then we wanted to, to come in and hopefully be able to expose them um, if no one else was going to speak up for them. Um, so it's it sort of, it, you know, like it's, it's certainly not an opportunity. Like it's, it was unfortunate that we were forced into doing this because they, um, they have no seat at the bargaining table, no voice. With those decisions being made, I think another thing that happened recently was uh, when MLB The Show launched and people are like, oh, my gosh, all these rosters like I can't believe all these minor leaguers are on here. And then uh, these minor leaguers are just like in this video game that they're not like their likeness is being used. And that was already negotiated in their uniform player contract that they signed. And it's just like. How do we how do we prevent things like that from happening where they just slip in? Um, yeah. And I, I think um, you're you're seeing that right now. It's like the 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 uh, first year player draft um, and and what might end up happening with that um, is going to limit the amount of minor leaguers. Um, also, what happened uh, with when all the rosters got locked is like a lot of guys got released uh, right before that. Um, so that these organizations didn't have to pay uh, so many guys. And they're the ones that have inflated the minor leagues to how many teams it is now. Like, you don't, like, they expanded their Arizona League teams and their Gulf Coast League teams. There's organizations that have two teams in the, in rookie ball. And it's like, you guys did this. It's, it's like, you guys should have to pay these minor leaguers because you, and now you want to like pull it back and, and say, you know, we, we actually don't need this many levels. It's like, well, you did before. And, yeah. and statistically though, right. It, but statistically it is about getting as many reps as possible. I, I've seen guys that have catapulted from, you know, rookie ball or short season all the way through the organization, but they wouldn't have had those opportunities if there wasn't that team, I mean, it's, it's, it's science. It's like, you need to be able to, it baseball is one of those sports that you need to be able to get as many reps as possible. You don't, there's no way to recreate a seeing 95 mile an hour fastball other than seeing a pitcher throw a 95 mile an hour fastball. Right. And, and the more reps that you get doing that, the better you're going to get at it. It's not like basketball where you could work on your jump shot 
it, hitting off the tee is not the same thing. And I think that's why it's the importance of the minor leagues is, is, is because of the reps that you get. And I do think that you, you do not need to eliminate that. This gets to the other proposal that is going on, uh, before was going on before all this happened was eliminating 42 teams in the minor leagues. And it's like, you don't need to do that in order to pay minor leaguers more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like the Mike Trouts of the world are always going to, to make it right. Like, like it feels like the, the minor leagues for the, you know, the first round draft picks, the superstars are, are just kind of icing on the cake. Like they're, they're going to be fine with the signing bonus and, and all the support that they are given from the organization. But it's, it's the guys who are drafted in the 10, 20, 30th rounds who like, aren't necessarily getting the undevoted attention of the entire organization where like these reps start to come in, like (laughs) really, they're really important. One of the, there was a a really good quote that um, Dick Tidrow, uh, former big leaguer, but also he was uh, in a player development position with the giants. When I was there, he said, everyone figures it out at some point. It's just whether or not they're still in the game at that Mm. time Mm -hmm. and i think that like that shit hit me where it's like not everyone gets to stay in this game and this system is broken that the the guys it didn't used to be like this but the guys that have to prove themselves are the the lower round guys or like the late round guys they always have to prove that they can play whereas those like top round guys always have to prove that they can't play I'm sure exactly. like Gabe, Gabe Kapler was a guy that probably had to prove that he can play right for, in order to get his big league shot. Um, he was like a 50 something rounder. Um, it, yeah, it's guys like that, um, that, you know, don't get, it, won't have the opportunities if you eliminate these 42 teams. One thing that I'm curious about a little bit is whether or not Alex and I are screaming into the void all the time. And and by that, I mean, I mean, I know we are screaming into the void in the sense that we're two dudes talking to each other on a podcast, but specifically as it relates to minor leaguers and labor rights in the game and everything like that, like, I'm just curious how this conversation that feels so potent and so powerful on Twitter, and we all know like Twitter is not real life, blah, 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 caveat, but how do we make that like a national conversation? Now, Matt, I know that you went and palled around with friend of the podcast, Bernie Sanders, and talked a little bit about this. And, and maybe you can tell that story if you'd like. But I'm just, I'm, I'm interested in seeing how, and, and your guys' view on how this kind of becomes a conversation that not just engaged baseball fans think about, but that every baseball fan thinks about. Sure. And I think that you... um with Senator Sanders and, and, um, why that hit, um, him Senator so hard. Sanders, so formal. That's right, like, right, you're like yeah. moderating the debate uh, on CNN. Yeah, I feel I like it. you're, you're the New York times. <laughs> we have to refer to him as Mr. Sanders. Mr. Sanders. <laughs> right. Well, uh, we weren't on a first name basis yet. Yet. <laughs> yet. Um, but I think what, uh, what hits so hard is that he, like that baseball one is like something he, he's very passionate about um, going all the way back to being a mayor in, in Vermont. I think it's just a message that resonates with people um, 
on a on a larger scale, right? And and why it made so much sense uh, for his campaign is that it is the the big organizations that the the billionaires who are paying nothing for this labor, and I, I think that message resonates with everybody, and everyone can get behind that. Um, and then I think another thing uh, too that that just perpetuates that is the lobbying that goes on in Washington. That's another thing um, that his campaign is obviously trying to eliminate is, is things like the Save America's Pastime Act that gets mm-hmm. passed on page 1000 whatever of the spending bill. And it's like, really, is that the hill that you're going to die on when there's all these other issues and all these things being cut in, in education and in healthcare? It's like, is our minor leaders going to be the ones that you fight for on page 1000 whatever? Um, I think those are, those are the issues that, um, may, why it made sense and, and why it is such a, uh, an understandable issue, uh, on just for every person. And that's what we're trying to accomplish is educating through that way is like, is making it so it's not this narrative of these are these boys, it's, these are men, right? These are, these are adults who are not getting paid what they deserve. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think you guys are like really smart online, and I, everything you're saying resonates with me. But like Ty, I'm thinking like, h- how would you make this conversation with like the Staten Island Mets fan who comes in for like three games a year with his family? You know, like it, it just it is a hard, it's sort of a hard conversation to get people riled up about if they don't think about these things all the time, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, it, it feels like everything that we do has to start with like, hey, we know that there are some other issues out there in the world like that that are are going on but like this is what matt and i know like we've got a combined like i don't know 15 16 years of like minor league experience and uh like we know so many guys we know uh, so many players that like have been affected in different ways and, and like there there is like the its own like ecosystem its own you know like its own world like in in professional baseball and that's the world that that we understand and that we have like this deep knowledge and and you know like passion for obviously and to to just be able to connect with those players i think is really the key like um a, a lot of what matt and i talk about is i mean especially like this is you know matt is really like the the smart one of the two of us with like what is going on in the world like I'm sort of just like walking around, like doing stuff, and and Matt's That's like, no, like, you need to, you need to like walk like this way, and I'm like, oh yeah, like that makes sense. I don't know, man. You're like you're baseball's premier climate change advocate, you know? Yeah, I sort of <laughs> fell into that one too. Um, I yeah, I thought I, the the interesting thing about that, like that was a tweet, and I I rarely tweet um, like hungover, and I was we we had had like a long bus trip the night before. And like, you know how minor league bus trips can go. And, and then I had had this like, I actually don't notes. know that. Yeah, I was going to say, a league baseball baseball player. <laughs> yeah, you oh, know how they sure. go. Oh, you guys know how they go. <laughs> and um, no, it's just like, you've got like a, a case full of beers, a, like yeah. coolers full of beers and stuff. This is like when you get to to AAA, to 3A as they call it. Um and that's how you show if you've if you've been in the minors for a long time if you call the levels by 3A and 2A rather than AA and AAA 
Um, just a little insight there for you guys. I know that's why we wow, came on we here. We should take that with us. I'm taking notes now. Now I'm going to be like an insider. <laughs> yeah, you got to go. Oh, he was up in 3A when that happened. People are going to be like, like, oh, did, he, did you play minor league baseball? Oh, wow. Yeah. Like a fake, a fake lip in and I'm like talking about 3A and 2A. <laughs> Yeah, or like show stories. Like if someone tells a, a story about the majors, you're like, oh, he's telling show stories. Um, <laughs> like it's very looked down upon uh, to be like, oh, another one. I, I guess I'm really going off on a tangent here is uh, to say like, oh, yeah, when I was up there, like that's the majors. When I was oh, up yeah. there. And then you just kind of like, hint at it. <laughs> yeah, it's either up there or down there. Down there is just broadly minor leagues. It and, sounds and, like heaven when you say it like that. <laughs> yeah, it, I, it really is. Um, is this heaven? But, no, it's Queens. <laughs> um, I don't remember the beginning of this, uh, what I was talking about. I, I guess I got on to uh, bus stories. Yeah, there's a, a lot of beer involved. And, and I, I woke up the next day and I was like, this is in my notes. Uh, I'm just going to go for it. And I sent it out and uh, now it's on a t-shirt. Yeah. So that's sort of the story behind that one. But well, I, what, it, what it is, is it's it, for those of you who don't know, Ty, the tweet was pimping home runs doesn't matter. The planet is dying. So yeah. it's so succinct. I love it. It's so it's such a perfect tweet. <laughs> yeah. Also, all lowercase with a period at the end, which I thought was like a statement. Uh, I don't really know why that's a statement, but it felt like the right thing to do. I, the lowercase makes it just like you're. It's super casual. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like I don't. I don't. I don't really care about how it looks. Like it's about the message. Yeah. Right. And then the period is just like that's it. That's it. Yeah, that's it. And now, yeah, literally now it's on a t-shirt that I'm, uh, that, well, they're all on my floor right now and in boxes. Um, <laughs> if you guys could see the, the mansion that I live in with, um, with boxes of, of t-shirts everywhere. Um, <laughs> that's no what you guys are advocating. That's, that's what you're advocating for is mansions just with boxes of t-shirts for every minor <laughs> leaguer. That's what I think everyone deserves, to be honest. Um, and this is the the hill that I'm going to die in, uh, or die on, rather. But so now I, I, that I remember what I was talking about originally, which was Matt sort of having a, a very good intuition on um, on sort of like what's going to resonate with the public, I guess, um, is that like these guys at the end of the day are employees and their family men and and their um just people like everyone else that are trying to like you know are they're trying to support their families um or or you know be a part of supporting their families and um and i think that that's really important to be able to connect with people that they're you know they're not the the like multi-millionaire um, like actually living in mansions with, you know, uh, with someone that's making their t-shirts for them and selling them somewhere else for them. Um, like they're, they're just a bunch of regular guys. And I think getting that point across to people, um, you know, that they deserve to be treated fairly. Like these are the, the, the points that we need to be making so that uh, everyone's like, Oh yeah, like I, I get that. I go through the same things, even though I'm not, uh, playing a sport to to try and make my living. I think another thing too is um, just the return on. I, I think organizations need to realize that they could see a return on their investment if they paid these minor leaguers more. Right? If you paid your thirty fifth rounder more money, he would not have to work in the off season and instead, like maybe put some of that money 
towards, I don't know, hiring a trainer, maybe a hitting coach, and then he can develop his skills in the offseason instead of worrying about, oh, how am I going to make money? And then he comes to spring training just prepared enough to perform for the season. Not He didn't get any better because he was too worried about how he was going to pay the bills at home for those six months that he was away. Yeah, and to, to talk about Matt Lujan, our friend from the beach earlier, he was working as a Lyft and Uber driver um, throughout his time in the minors, throughout his like five-ish years in the minors. Um, he was working for both Uber and Lyft. He would put both apps on at the same time and see which one he got a ride uh, from first. And like, it, this is something that's very common that people are working jobs in the off-season and they're they're losing time on training and even if he's going to do this like after his training and everything throughout the day his meals are going to be in weird times he's going to be staying up till like three four in the morning a lot of days a lot of weekends trying to make extra money trying to work during surge times like he his whole schedule is gonna be thrown off so where i luckily have like the support of my parents paying for a lot of uh for like rent and stuff like that in the off season, um, he's working to try and uh, be able to pay his rent. Like he's, he has to do all these things and it puts him on this crazy schedule and it takes away from time that he could just be sleeping. First of all, like trying to get on a schedule of like eating and, and exercising and things like that. And like, like he's a professional athlete, but a lot of these guys are are doing like working these odd jobs in the off season to just try and survive. Yeah. And I think that also gets into how it's like kind of a pay to play model, just like how the amateur level is in baseball, right? Is you're seeing these uh, players who um, they, if they can't afford to do it anymore, they kind of kind of have to just be like, all right, well, that's it. Whereas someone whose maybe family is supplementing their is subsidizing their playing career uh, in some sort of way, whether that's providing rent or maybe you even are doing it on your own with with loans. I know I did it through building up credit card debt, and you have to figure out some way that you're going to subsidize your own career um, in order to play instead of like it just being over when you're done playing, like I was still paying off my career for uh, until recently. Um, but you're, that's why you see it. it it's the, it gets back to what Dick Tidrow said to us it, it, in that everyone will figure it out. It's just whether they're still in the game or not. Well, those guys that can subsidize their playing career are the ones that end up making it. And that, shouldn't be the case it shouldn't be about socioeconomic standing of why these guys make it to the major leagues you know you know you hear this baseball player uh can't eat or sleep on regular schedules but i hear this is an inspirational story of a of a baseball player who has to work 12 jobs that uh that just went up on buzzfeed i and you know frankly i'm gonna i'm gonna hit that with a retweet Right. Matt, that's Matt loves that. That's 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 the issue right there, right? Is the uh, romanticizing this this journey and it's it's just all these bus rides and and stuff. It builds character and it's like no, it it, it really doesn't. It it builds <laughs> resentment uh yeah towards this game that you 
loved and because you become an adult during this time and and you're trying to live a life and it's no life to live when you aren't sure how you're going to eat well can i just say it it feels incredibly great to bring other people on to yell about billionaires and and reference their own tweets that they've made. I mean, this feels <laughs> ex- ex- extremely Ty, on brand. Ty, can I've you got do other your tweets? Yeah, do you want me to do any? Of, I of think my you other should tweets? do. Well, no, I think you should do your uh, Bernie Sanders. Sorry, Senator Sanders impression. Well, right now we've got billionaire owners in baseball, <laughs> and they're not paying the minor leaguers any money. And this, this is good. not okay. We, I've spent a lot of time with Matt Perret in uh, Iowa, which is a very important state. And <laughs> we took batting practice, and I hit the ball very far. But that's not the point. There are still billionaires out there, and they cannot exist, and that is my platform. I can't tell if that was Bernie Sanders or if you just need to to blow your nose. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a very nasally Bernie. But I like the you got you got you you nailed the like he interrupts himself like his own sentences part of it. You got that part. Well, you have to see my hand motion too. I have the hand motion down uh, yeah. really well. He does this thing where he he starts pointing like at pretty much at the camera and then he goes to straight to the side, especially with his right hand. Yeah. He'll do like a point and then it slowly gets further and further away from his it's like body. A ripple effect, yeah. That's a thing too that people don't, uh, well, they, they know about us a, a little bit, but I feel like it's, we are like funny guys too. We, in, we enjoy <laughs> comedy. We're not uh, just because we have a, a nonprofit called Advocates for Minor Leaguers doesn't mean that we can be You're not comedic. Exactly. Well, well, Matt, you're UCB trained for the most part. I am UCB <laughs> improv trained now. Um, right before all this went down, uh, yeah, I got I got trained up. Um, I love it. Well, we're gonna have to uh, have to bring you guys back for a solely improv uh, podcast one of these days. Uh, this our our yes and minor leaguers <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, before before we uh, before we let you guys go because you've been incredibly gracious with your time. Do you want to just uh, quickly share kind of how you guys are staying sane in this uh, in this tumultuous time indoors? Aside from running a very important nonprofit, obviously, kind of how are you how are you keeping entertained? Yeah, as baseball people or or not, you know, as are you going back and watching old games? Are you are you just watching video of you in the cage from the good old days or what? What's up? Hmm. Well, I I've run out of uh, old highlights that I can watch of myself. I, the one thing that I regret for my career is just not having more highlights on YouTube. Um, because I Same. think I've watched them too many times. And I sort of, I also sort of feel bad that I, I watched them so often throughout my career that like now I'm like, I already know what's going to happen. Right. They and don't hit the same, huh? No, they, they don't. Unfortunately, literally they don't hit the same. And I, I, yeah, I just wish I had more highlights to go back and watch. Um, because I'm pretty much at this point, I'm I'm just like fresh out of highlights, right? And, and I've I've kind of ran out of I've ran out of Ty's highlights to watch too. Um, <laughs> so what I've been doing to keep sane is I I, I look out my uh, patio window here, my little like sliding glass door, and I um, judge people for not socially distancing, um, mm. and also for how 
poorly they're handling their masks and not wearing them correctly and and touching them and it's it's easy to judge from from up top up here uh but uh yeah that's the best place to judge from a distance is is away from people and in your home too like high up on a pedestal that's exactly you're supposed to relate to people right isn't that how uh, society's built right isn't it the uh, the, with the hills and everything is you're rob manfred right exactly (laughs) um all right guys thank you so much for doing this we really appreciate it can you just plug everywhere everyone can find uh advocates for minor leaguers where they can find you guys your stuff anything every every social media channel down just list them off go okay so so read out the entire link of ty's tweet (laughs) right exactly HTTPS backslash. No, so you can find us at at MILB Advocates, as well as our own individual socials, which is for Ty, it's at Ty Kelly 11. And then for myself, it's at Matt Perret on Instagram and TikTok. And then at yeah. hip hip underscore Perret on Twitter because I can't get Matt Perret. Someone else has it. Yeah, my my TikTok. You forgot my TikTok also. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I have yeah, I have three three followers, three following, uh Ty Kelly eleven fourteen, where I clearly have not posted anything ever. And it, may not. because Ty Kelly eleven was taken. <laughs> yeah, I would have been posting constantly if I had that one. But was now that like no someone just doing it. an impersonation of you at Ty Kelly Eleven? <laughs> I didn't even get to see. I, I should follow them and and like ask for like asking for my jersey. You know, yeah. Like hey, like I can you know a, jer- I'll a jersey you. swap. <laughs> yeah, like let's just switch uh, links or whatever. <laughs> you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. All right, guys, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. So, uh, Alex, we skipped your weird internet corner this week, and I'm sad because I, I was really looking forward to it. You know, I laid down in bed last night, and I was like, damn, what is Alex going to come up with for tomorrow? <laughs> but we ran too long on this one, and we, and we can't do it. And the it's, listeners just going to have to wait, and I, they're going to be mad. I know they are. Yeah, you know, I had a story all lined up, but but frankly, it's it's okay. It's going to give me more time to uh, to really perfect the prose. I was uh, I was in a little bit of rush scribbling all this down, but I'm I'm gonna be ready. You're gonna be blown away. Just gonna work on your craft, you know. Yeah, much the, like the, an MLB player. Just gonna I'm sit the, down and work on your craft this week. I'm the Roger Angel of baseball podcasts. You're the you're the Chris Bryant needs another week to work on his defense of the baseball podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you everyone for listening to us this week. We've had a we've had a real blast. We've had a real blast doing these uh these retrospective watches of games. So if you have any recs as Bobby said, send them our way at tippingpitchespod at gmail.com. Yeah. Tipping underscore pitches on Twitter. And uh, and you can find our podcasts literally anywhere you get your podcasts. So uh, so rate and subscribe and tell a friend because we know you're not doing anything else. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to say really quickly, I'm, we're so appreciative of everyone who listens and or reaches out. And, um, you know, we understand that this is a weird time to be listening to podcasts and uh, a weird time to be just 
going back and getting excited about baseball. But if that's if that's useful to you in just like taking your mind off stuff, then we would really appreciate if you could tell a friend about like what we're doing here. If you have a friend who you think might want to go back and watch any of these games or just might want to hear two idiots talking talking about baseball, thinking they know what they're talking about and writing dumb summaries of games and internet deep dives, like it would it would really mean a lot to us because I think uh, I think even doing this podcast still makes part of my life feel normal and seeing you on a zoom call every week is reassuring that we can continue to do this as the world continues to get weirder and weirder and baseball seems further and further away so i don't know that's my stump speech and i just i appreciate everyone listening so we'll be back in your feeds next monday and thanks again And we used to drive cars. Uh, what else did we used to do that we don't do now? I can't remember because I just sit in my apartment and I just ponder. That doesn't really rhyme. But <laughs> That was a great job, Ty. All right, now I'm warmed up. Calvin Giraldi couldn't do it. And it's up to Bob Stanley. And it's up to Mookie Wilson. And the crowd is alive again. And Rick Aguilera praying that he'll get off the hook. Mookie Wilson struck out, singled to right, grounded out, and then sacrificed. And that was the bunt that Gedman fielded and threw high to spike on at second base. Dale Ford just checked that ball, rubbing it. Now he's going out to talk to Stanley. I wonder what that's all about. Stanley throws, among other things, a palm ball. You have the tying run 90 feet away in Kevin Mitchell and the possible winning run at first in Ray Knight. And here's Mookie. Foul off. 55,078 here at Shea and they have really been put through the ringer. One ball, one strike. Johnson, who had that most important at bat in the ninth inning. Out away, two and two.
Tension mounts some more. With two out in the tenth. Five-four Red Sox. Ray Knight at first. Kevin Mitchell at third. Two and two to Mookie Wilson. And it's going to go to the backstop. Here comes Mitchell to score the tying run. And Ray Knight is at second base. Behind the bag! It gets through Buckner! He 